The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909. 741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to the Influencers Edge. Once again, we have an amazing guest. And, you know, it's my intent in these shows to bring to you people who are on the cutting edge of sales, influence, and persuasion. Today's guest certainly fills that definition. He is Alan Corey. Alan, welcome to the show. Paul, excited to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. So let me go through your bio. It is pretty impressive. So Alan is the host of Real Estate Maximalist podcast. He's the author of three books. That in and of itself is an achievement. So I just got to press the pause button right here and say, where in the world do you find the discipline to sit down and write three books? I've only written one. And that was like pulling teeth. I, I enjoy writing. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it doesn't feel like work to me. And thankfully, you know, I don't use my writing to pay the bills because it doesn't doesn't pay me <laughs> handsomely, but it's been like the best business card is sort of how I explain it. Um, gets me on podcasts like this and meet some great people. People, you know, return my emails now, but, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a writer and I like being creative, but I also really obsess about finance and real estate. So it, it really marries my two passions and it's it's how I learn. So it's usually how I best teach others. Fantastico. You, one of your books is A Million Bucks by 30. That's a title that appeals to everyone. So tell me just a little bit more about that. You, you made a million by the age you were 30? And, uh, by the age- and I borrow 100,000. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, by the age of 28, actually, uh, but uh, 30 had a, a nicer ring to it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was living in Manhattan on a $40,000 career, you know, job that I hated tech support nine to five. And I just, it was just right out of college. I needed, you know, this is my first introduction to be an adult and corporate gigs. And I was like, okay, this is not the life for me. And I, I didn't have any money mentors in my life. I didn't know any rich people or anything. So I just went to the library and got, you know, read everything I could. I mean, this was before social media and, and blogs and YouTube, you know, I'm 44, but you know, in my twenties, those things didn't exist. So libraries is where I had to go. Um, and just, just read as much as I could on it. And what I basically did is I took my salary and lived off 61%, I'm sorry, invested 31% of it 
invested 69% of it, lived off 39%. Wow. So that, that, that got down to like 16 to $18,000. Whoa. Um, whoa, and, whoa. I'm going to yeah. interrupt my interruption. How did you deal with the fear <laughs> and the uncertainty of doing that? It must have scared the crap out of you. Uh, it was the opposite. I felt more secure um, because it's like, oh, I need a money to invest in anything, whether it's real estate or stocks or 401ks. I just I just need more money. So um, I couldn't go to my boss and say, give me a raise. You know, you know, I did. It didn't work. But uh, it's so I was like, oh, I just got to cut down my expenses. And so I just cut down everything and walked everywhere or took a bus, you know, unlimited subway pass, bus pass, didn't have a car. Uh, I actually lived in the projects uh, during this wow. uh, in Spanish Harlem and lived off ramen noodles. That's I don't recommend that for everyone. But uh, I, I just I was like, this is important to me because I will be miserable at this day job or any day job. Honestly, the day job's fine, but it's just that's not my nature. I just needed a foundation to to build off of. And so I did that basically for five years and invested it in a bunch of different things and it, it paid off. And, uh, um, you know, it's all delayed gratification. I don't feel like I, I threw away my twenties. Uh, you know, a bigger part of my story is I, I really wanted to be a comedy writer. And so I, I was doing, I was doing standup comedy and, and that's how you get hired to write for shows. And so I was like, well, I, I was in the clubs at three o'clock every single night and I'd wake up and go to work and was just a terrible, like, you know, wasn't sleeping. And so I was like, I need some income to replace my day job income so I could focus on being a comedy writer. And uh, then I, what I realized is, okay, wow, real estate, I'm better at it. It, it pays me better. And uh, so I ended up keeping my day job because it was a means to the end. Cause I was like, Oh, the longer I have my day job, the more mortgages I can get, the more money I can invest, the more, you know, properties. So setting aside the tactical stuff, I'm working at the rest of it. As I warned you before we went live, uh, that I ask different questions, setting aside all the technical stuff that you teach your clients, which I'm sure is right on the dot. We'll ask questions about that. This skill of delaying gratification, how in the world do you teach that to your clients and students about how to take on that psychology, that mindset of delayed gratification? And if so, how do you get that across? We're living in a society where there's instant gratification, instant stimulation. So how, how did you learn it? Were you a natural at that? And how do you convey that to your students and clients? I mean, I, I don't know if it's something you can you can necessarily teach. It's got to come from within. Like it, the, the goal has to be worth it, that you're willing to get, put up some sacrifice to re reach that goal. And, you know, where I learned... And I just realized we're like halfway through the of, of your intro. So sorry if I went off on a tangent here. But no. uh, the um, I, I grew up surrounded. Like both my my parents were teachers, you know, public school teachers, and so I didn't have a lot of wealth. But we lived in a wealthy neighborhood, so I was I was always surrounded by wealth, and I lived a life of. Um, you know, frugality, you know, growing up. And so we, we had to be creative. We have to do our resources. And, um, I, I always felt out of place. And I was like, I, I understand like at a young age that everyone has more than me. Why is that? And so, um, I grew up not having much compare and compared to them. And so I just continued that it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was something I was used to my whole life, I suppose. Yeah.
I think that's wonderful that rather than coming from envy, you came from a place of motivation. So good for you. Let me keep going on here. I'm I'm sorry, but when I get something, uh, a I love it. bit of yeah. curiosity from it, I have to keep going. You're also the author of House Fire, Financial Independence Retire Early, about how to build your lifestyle design and early retirement through real estate investing. Alan has over 300, it says doors. That must be a misprint in your that, that that's how real estate investors talk because uh, you, you could say i've got 300 doors like that could be three 100 unit apartment buildings it could be 300 single family got it. yeah got it and 20 years of experience but teaches and only takes three to four properties to transform your life that is absolutely amazing so let me ask the first question i think i have an answer to it by the way my parents were real estate brokers both of them oh okay why real estate over stocks, because a lot of people like to play the market and see instant gratification. But why real estate? I think when I was 21 and learning about this for the first time, I could visualize it, right? Because I've lived in a house, I've paid a landlord money, I was paying landlord money. Like I, 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 it felt painful every month, the first of the month, doling out my money. And I was like, oh, that'd be great if it was the reverse and people were doling out their money to me. So I think one, it was easy for me to visualize. Two, Stocks, it was like, it, it felt a little gamblish, you know, uh, even though you, you all the data, like I couldn't go into, you know, Amazon because I invested in Amazon and say, hey, Bezos, I think you should cut payroll and, uh, you know, raise price. Like I had no control. And I, that's what I was lacking. I wanted control of my finances and I didn't have control of my day job. You know, you know they, they, they decide what they could pay me. Uh, and, and so I felt like if they control my income, I still want to control my outcome. And so I went, it was, it was just felt like I could decide what would it rent for, what I would buy it for, what renovations I'd put into it. it I just felt in control of my money. And that was, it, it just sort of sunk in with me that way. That's a, I can see that's a really good way to put it because rather than gamble, yeah. you invest and you have that measure of control. I, I can actually very strongly see that. So this is something that's totally counterintuitive and I like it. I like to have guests that have contrarian advice. So why is having a paid off property horrible? A lot of people say, do not be in debt, pay the damn thing off. So how are you coming to this conclusion? Because this is the opposite of what a lot of people are saying. Uh, right. So for, for me, debt is um, that that's like a lot of people come from the talking heads, Dave Ramsey, who's your man, at least I did. And they're all like, pay off your debt, pay off your debt. Um, and that's great if you've got negative net worth. But once you you're sort of get above that you you have control of your finances like that's the discipline you you're you're not at the you know you you can delay gratification if you can overcome that then you have the skill set to use leverage to to help you so um what do you mean by leverage i know what you mean but a lot of people don't let, let, let leverage is another name for mortgage or going into debt you're, you're leveraging someone else's money to increase your so the way i look at it is this Let's say you you drive into a gas station um, or um, and and there's you open the door and there's a dollar on the ground uh, today, and so you you can get that dollar, pick it up, and say, "Hey, I'm going to go inside and buy a bag of candy." 
Maybe it's a Snickers bar for a dollar if you're lucky, right? Um, you can also say, you know what? I'm prudent and I want to pay off my primary residence. So I'm going to mail this dollar into my mortgage company and get a full dollar off, right? Like that, that, that's a legit option that someone would have. But let's say you, you leave that dollar on the ground and um, it's, you hide it. And 15 years later, you come back to the same gas station. You're like, oh, wait, I wonder if that dollar is still there. So 15 years later, you pick up that dollar and you have the same debate with yourself. You can either go into the gas station, buy a bag of candy, which is now $3, right? Right. In inflation, right? Wow. So you're like, oh man, why did, why I should have bought it 15 years ago when it was a dollar, right? Um, but now I get a third of a bag of candy. But the other option is, hey, I can still mail this into my bank and get a full dollar off my mortgage payment. That doesn't change, Right. So, because um, you have a 30-year fix. So the longer you have a mortgage, it's always going to feel like it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so it's always better to have more money to go buy things like candy, right? Or whatever lit goods, like you need to be buying that today because um, it's the cheapest it's ever going to be. Your mortgage is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every single year. So why would you ever want to pay off that? Like that is your advantage. You want to lean into that advantage and keep it as long as possible. Yeah, I can also see, and correct me if this is not accurate, but I can also see if you're paying like a 3 or 3.5% fixed rate and inflation is running at 8.5%, you're paying back your lender at inflated dollars. So you're actually paying that you're making money there because the dollars you're paying are worth uh, a lot less. No, you, you you just repeated my example back to me, but yeah, that's the point I'm trying yeah. to illustrate. Yes, yes. Yeah, I got it. All right. I have to speak in terms that I understand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why are extra payments on your mortgage terrible? Well, it's the it's the same principle there. Um, it, it's you it well for take so that's primary. So let's talk about real estate investing for a bit. So real estate investing um, is, is also something I teach and, and really that's how I grew my wealth. And it's the way to look at it. A lot of people say, hey, I've got $100,000, right? Let me buy a $100,000 house. And so and then I'll rent it out for $1,000 a month. And that's going to be the best use of my money. No risk is sort of how they look at it. And um, I, 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 to me, I teach them that's super risky um, because if you have a vacancy and a tenant moves out or whatever, you're still having expenses. You're losing money each month because you still have property taxes. You still have home insurance, exactly. you know, ups, you know, landscaping, things like that. You're still spending money on, on a vacant property, right? All your eggs are in one basket. So instead why don't you do a mutual fund approach where you take that $100,000 and let's chop it up into five sections of $20,000. Typically, you need 20% to buy a, a down payment on a property. So you, you could buy five homes with that same $100,000, 20 down, 20 down, 20 down, 20 down. Now you're going to have an $800 mortgage, but you're still renting them out for 1000 So you're making 200 200 200 200 So with that exact same $100,000, one you made $1,000 a month in rent with some wow. risk of vacancy. If you have five homes, you're making $1,000 in rent. But if one is vacant, you've got four that'll probably, that'll carry you, right? Yeah. Because uh, four is still making 800. So instead of you losing money each month, you're, 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 you, it's a mutual fund where one's floating the other. 
And if you carry this example out into the future, um, let's assume every year you raise the uh, the rent 10 bucks um, for whatever reason. Um, if you have one house in, in five years, you'll have you know 1,050 bucks of, of rental income coming in. But if you have five houses and you do that, you got 1,250 bucks uh, coming in. If, if I'm doing my math right, right? You 5X right. the amount of rental income coming in uh, because you're just raising 10 bucks across five different homes. Now, if you're a real estate investor, you typically think that, hey, I'm investing my money in this because I think the value is going to go up. So if I buy one house and the housing prices go up over 10, you know, 10%, you know, it could be over five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever your horizon. If it goes up 10%, you've got one house, you turned $100,000 into $110,000 with one house. But if you've got five houses and five houses go up in value, you know, ten thousand dollars each or ten percent each. Now you've turned that into you know you five x that return as well. So it's you've got one hundred ten thousand dollar home times five. You know, five hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. Sure, you still got that mortgage, but the tenant's going to be to pay down that mortgage. Your rental income is going to be up. Your rent, right. your risk is was lower, and so that's what I mean by leverage. That's a, if you picture a lever, like lifting up a rock, that's what mortgage and, and debt is. It's like a lever that's lifting up your finances. Uh, and you're not going to get that operating in all cash in, in real estate. Those numbers even make sense to me. And I'm not a math whiz. I think also in order to execute your, your strategy, in order to execute what you teach, you really do have to be willing to take on a contrarian way of looking at things. You have to be able to doubt the experts. And then you you have to be willing to take on some measure of risk. There's no risk-free investment. If anyone comes along and tells you it's risk-free, take your wallet and run. I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, I, I my approach reduces risk. I, I'll right. give you more examples outside of the, the vacant Please. tenant. But Please. imagine, yeah, so imagine you put $100,000 in one house and the neighborhood turns to crime or it burns down to the ground Absolutely. or you don't have insurance. You lose $100,000, right? Now, imagine if I've got five houses and and one, you know, just burns to the ground, craps out, whatever, just just falls. I still have four. Like I said, like I've, I've, it's a mutual fund. That's why you don't invest in one stock. You invest in thousands of stocks. Right. And it, it's the same sort of thing. And then I also say this, every house comes with an imaginary lottery ticket. You don't buy a house because of rapid appreciation, like, hey, I think this house is going to go up, but it does happen. And so if you have one house in one neighborhood um, and that neighborhood doesn't change, well, that, you know, okay, that's fine. Uh, but what's happened to me, because I've leveraged and spread out my money, occasionally I have one house that doubles, triples, quadruples in value that I was not expecting. I bought it for hundred bucks, 200 bucks a month. And then a hundred thousand dollar house turns into a $500,000 house, you know, 10 years later, that is like an imaginary lottery ticket. Like, oh, I, I would not I have been able that. to buy that house if I paid off this house in all cash. I love that reframe. I love that reframe of it being, uh, it's a lottery ticket, but it's a lottery ticket where you have a tremendous chance of winning. I think that's- it's, yeah. Asymmetrical upsides are like the best thing in uh, every wealth, you know, maker. Let's like, talk about that. Yeah. You just you just tossed out a great technical term, asymmetrical upsides. I've never ever heard that 
phrase before. What what is that concept? I think you just unpacked it, but if you could unpack it just a little bit more. Yeah, it, it's basically that um, the the money you've invested. Like I've invested twenty thousand dollar house, right? I could either lose I could lose twenty thousand dollars, and so. That stinks, but the upside is, well, I could turn that twenty thousand dollars into a million dollars. Like it's just it, the it's not that you know tw- I can make tw- put in twenty and I could make twenty. I could put in twenty and make a million dollars. Like that is a that's a asymmetrical risk, an asymmetrical bet. Um, all the big entrepreneurs uh, do this. Um, like like Richard Branson when he started Virgin uh, Airlines, right? He he invested in one airplane and he actually um, negotiated that the airplane was free for the, like the first three months. Um, and then, so to prove he had a business idea and then he said, I'll buy it at the end. So the upside was tremendous to him and to the the company that loaned him the plane and, and everything. But the, the, the downside is sure he's got to pay for the fuel and the staff and the permits. And so to him, he's like, okay, I'll, I'll put a hundred thousand dollars into this, but if it works out, I could have a, a you know, a hundred million dollar business. And so that that's how every sort of entrepreneur inventor risk taker operates you, I, you know I I see billionaires I've worked with billionaires and they'll start a company and they're still passing around the house to raise money for their company and it's like why would you do that because you have the money to run this company all by yourself and it's like listen my company may may take off but if I shop uh, if I split up my money across my company and 19 other new companies all I need is one of these to take off and it's worth my return on money, right? Because uh, the chances are that a business is not going to become a unicorn. But if I spread across my money across 10 businesses, right. you know, one of them might. And so that that's how every wealth maker thinks. And I, I learned that as I went and in the library and in real life. Uh, and so now I'm trying to just teach others as well. You know, to me, as someone who's a student of human psychology and subconscious mind and the rest of it, kind of begs the question. The question is this. How does a person tell the difference between wishful thinking? Like, okay, I can see this is really going to go up this much and here's what it's going to be. How do they tell the difference between wishful thinking and making a wise choice about what really is a good asymmetrical return? Do you I mean, get where I'm driving? Yeah, well... In my case, I call them imaginary lottery tickets. Like I, I do not make a decision. I don't even think about the asymmetrical upside when I buy a real real estate property. I'm thinking about worst case scenario. Like worst case scenario is is this still going to pay? Like is the tenant going to cover all my expenses? Like worst case scenario would be I'm breaking even on this kind of thing. Um, or hey, if I can't get this rent as a long-term, could I make this rent as a short-term rental? Or could I renovate it and then sell it and get my money back? Like all I'm I'm thinking is I've got all these, uh, you know, backup plans and backups to the backup plans. I love this. I love this. Forgive me. I have to interrupt. This is so contrarian. Instead of people saying, oh, think positive, visualize the result, you're thinking worst case scenario first, which I think, again, is completely... Yes, you're looking at the benefit. I get it. But you think first, what's the worst case scenario? A lot of people would say that's negative thinking. I think that's just making great decisions. And I think what's what's really a valuable contribution coming from you, as I perceive it, is you're teaching people the art of making great decisions. Yes, it's about real estate investing. But at the end of the day, you're teaching making great decisions. 
And very few people teach that, Alan, to your credit. Oh, thanks. People teach positive thinking and visualizing results. But I always say, why isn't teaching anyone teaching how to make great decisions? And not just about a particular field, but but about making great decisions. So you're you're bringing great value on what and how to invest. But I think an additional value that you're bringing, I don't know if you realized this before or not, I don't mean to be presumptuous, is you're teaching the art of making great decisions, which in and of itself is incredibly valuable. Well, I, I love that spin. I haven't thought of that, of that way before, but to maybe pull the rug out from under you, people do get a little caught up in, in worst case scenario sometimes, and then they never buy the property. So there is a fine line where you can talk yourself out of every single property. And then you're that person who's, oh, I could have, I would have, I should have. And it's, it, you know, I, I, I have clients who, you know, they've been trying to buy for five years and it's like, you know, two years ago, I'm not going to buy because uh, every, there's a bidding war and every, all the prices are, are, are up. I'm going to wait. And then you, you check in with them. Now, uh, I'm not going to buy because interest rates are up. And and uh, and it's like there, there's no perfect market for you because you're, you're not going to buy here. You're not going to buy there. You know, so you it's it, it's a fine line of, hey, let's look at the numbers. Let's be realistic. Let's be practical. And what, you know, the chances are that, um, you know, your house burns down or low. And even, even if it's low, you also have insurance to cover that. Right. And so like, like, like it's, it's practicality, practicality, I guess, walking through what is your biggest worry here? And typically it's, I don't want to lose money. And it's like, listen, no investor wants to lose money. That's, that's why I don't, you know, but, but not investing, you're losing money, you know, kind of thing. Like, I love your, that too. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you have to, you have to, you're not going to make money unless you're in the game. Um, and, but if you're in the game with a plan, a plan B and plan C all making you money and then plan D breaks you even, you might as well play the game. And then, you know, you do this over a long period of time, you're, you're going to get, get wealthy no matter what. I love that. I absolutely love it. You've shared real fire with the audience today and you shared some unique understandings, which I really appreciate. We try to bring on guests with unique perspectives, and I really like a lot. You've shared incredible value. How can our audience continue the discussion with you? What can they do to stay in the conversation? I appreciate that, Paul. Um, I'm very active on Twitter at Real Estate Maxi. Uh, my podcast is Real Estate Maximalist, and uh, you can also go to my website, Real Estate maximalist.com uh, as well. So uh, all, all those would be great ways to reach me. And I, I love teaching real estate. It's fun and, and uh, it changed my life and I want to change others. It's obvious you have a passion for what you do. By the way, let me close the interview by saying I also was a comedy writer. I was not a good comedy writer. I wrote one of the worst movies ever made. When we go off the air, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> At least your movie got made. but No one even wanted to make my movie. So, yeah. uh, someone had the bad decision and the bad choice to make it. All right, Alan Corey, thanks for being on the show. Stay with us, Alan, after we're done uh, when they're off the air. Everybody, thanks for being on the Influencers, watching the Influencers Edge or listening as the case may be, or both. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye now. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. 
That's COMPEL to 411321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack at sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on the Influencer's Edge Show.